Things which people said were impossible have just been done. When you spend your whole life believing the world is one way, and then you have an insight, you, you see that another world is possible. You, and when you see that, even if just for an instant, your previous worldview is, is dissipated. Welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode we talk with somebody who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this episode, I enjoyed reconnecting with an old friend and former colleague, Rohan Gunatalika, who is a digital innovator and entrepreneur in the fields of health, well-being, and mindfulness. He is creator of the best-selling app Buddhify, author of the book Modern Mindfulness, and host of the Surprisingly Good Meditative Story podcast. He also works with a national health service in Scotland, making digital technologies for clinicians, care workers, and citizens. Based in Glasgow, Rohan and I first met over a decade ago at the UK innovation foundation Nesta, where we worked together on harnessing social media for social impact. And more than almost anybody I know, he really strives to live in the present moment and focus on what is really happening right now. So I started out by asking him how he came up with the idea for the Buddhify app in the first place and to embed mindfulness into our everyday lives. Enjoy. So I was working out of IBM Southbank. It was 98, 99. So parkour was really cool. And so Southbank was obviously like the epicenter of a lot of free running and stuff. And so I'd see all these people doing their thing and it got me really interested in this idea of you know they're using their environment as the play space the playground for their sport they're seeing the architecture and the urban environment as a play space and that was a very influential idea for me both for Buddhify because they're using the the city as your meditation space and also it got me really into social games or urban games and that led me into making all sorts of connections professionally and personally the kernel of that idea was what led to me doing all the work I did in mindfulness meditation. So how are you bringing some of that kind of liminal space? How have you retained some of that in your lockdown life? Having a dog helps. It's a good uh, way of engineering some space. You know, it's all about just different kinds of input, right? And so I've got really into cooking. I've always been into cooking, but just like doing it in almost like fanatical way. So since the start of lockdown... I've made the same thing every Wednesday since the middle of Ooh, March. What is it? Tell me, tell me. In Glasgow, we've got, we're very lucky in North Glasgow. There's a historic sort of Chinese Malaysian population. And there's a really cool little cluster of quite un, like restaurants. There's a dish we used to order from there called in Mandarin is pronounced Yi Shang Xiezi, something like that. It means fish fragrant aubergine. It's basically a, a really, it's a classic Sichuan aubergine dish, which has loads of like tangy sweet rich spice like this is like so great like, every time we ordered it, it would be like this is so nice and then i was like i'm gonna learn how to make it and then i found this german youtuber obviously and then every week i've just been like changing a thing upgrading my ingredients downgrading my ingredients trying it vegan trying it super non-vegan trying it spicy trying it 
as Ratatouille. I made a Ratatouille ah, version of okay. it. That, what, what that's been nice is that that's opened up a whole different... Just becoming obsessed with this one dish that's got me into Chinese cooking YouTube, which I've now become really obsessed with. <laughs> so when I'm putting the baby to bed and she's like, I put her down, but she's still like not quite ready. I'll probably nail like three or four videos of different dishes. And it's just got me thinking because there's a real sort of sensuality to Chinese food, which is different because it's about applying quite a relatively small set of flavor profiles to a huge range of ingredients. And so this made me sort of think about, and that's what sort of made me think about like, okay, what if you, what if I applied this technique to that? And so, so that's been interesting. That's been one form of liminal space. When I was very young, we lived in Hong Kong for a couple of years and which, and during that time, my dad got really into Chinese cooking. So it's also a way of connecting back because, so he did a course and was, would love cooking Chinese food. That is a, there's an echo in my relationship to him by doing this. And so I'm sort of channeling a bit of that. So he died a few years ago. So it's just like, a, it's just a little thing that sort of brings him to mind, which is quite nice. And, you know, lockdown is the ultimate, like you're not with other people, but doing a little thing. There's only so many Zoom meetings you can do with your family, right? When you were starting to talk about the cooking, I thought, is this like Mark Zuckerberg wearing the same gray t-shirt every day? So he doesn't have to sort of use up any cognitive load making another decision no it's much more about ritual i think it's much more about it's become a thing that you know because my wife really loves this particular dish and so it's become like a ritual certainly before the children went back to school and nursery it felt every day felt the same having a weekly thing which felt different was useful i'm curious have you seen the netflix documentary that came out recently the social dilemma have you seen that yet no i'm hearing lot i'm hearing lots about it so this is tristan harris who i know from because i you know i got very interested in the idea of how our, our attention is manipulated and i realized that as mindfulness became very popular within tech communities all their ceos were sort of champions yeah i felt really hollow because i felt like if it's not changing the product, then it's not making a difference. One time I was out in the States and went to Facebook HQ in Menlo Park, and it was a whole day of presentations and workshops around well-being and what Facebook had learnt. It felt very marginal. And So what um, have you done about that, uh, or where have you decided to take that? Because I've observed that as well, and it just seems to have taken off in a sort of huge way. Well, the first thing we did, we made a piece of work. So we made a thing called designingmindfulness.com, which was based on this idea that one way of scaling mindfulness is vertically. So make Headspace massive, make Buddhify massive, make Calm massive, whatever. So make the individual mindfulness sort of well-being space big. But then I realized, you know, ultimately the biggest mindfulness product in the world is never going to be, never going to, it's a rounding error compared to Snapchat or the big platforms. So the other way to scale well-being and mindfulness is to do it horizontally and to build into everything. So what would that look like? We did some speculative design work on what it might look like for various products. You know, I shared that work with Tristan and other people and just became part of that little gang of people thinking about. But people like Tristan and that group, the Center for Humane Technology, as it became, you know, they're, they're leading the line on this because they caused the problem. You know, like they were in the belly of the beast when they went and they've now become sort of billionaire whistleblowers. <laughs> it's very compelling when the people who created the problem intentionally or unintentionally, the dream is where 
this conversation grows as a public conversation. You know, having major Netflix documentaries is is a signifier of that happening. I'm, I, you know, I was pitching BBC four documentaries on this about four or five years ago here in Scotland. So it's nice to see like that coming into play. I've done some work with Facebook recently around mental health and well-being, but I definitely had some challenges about whether that was something I wanted to do. And for me, the hardest hitting thing about the social dilemma was just as a parent, you know, seeing my kids and their relationship with the screens and my pathetic attempts to sort of parent in this wild west of the internet. That's the thing, it's not it's not their fault. Too often the narrative is we have to stop the kids playing Fortnite or using whatever TikTok, then the problem then becomes your, the parent's problem to solve when the problem, real problem is upstream in product design. Like the problem is being outsourced to us as users when actually it's an industry problem. So just linking those two things together, how do we embed mindfulness? The essence is just it's looking at space specific use cases. So we do nine different principles and then we exemplified each of those principles with an actual screen design or product design. So one was around the problem of the way notifications work. The engineering approach is to put a red circle on an app button with a large number in it, which is a triggering, basically emotionally, red is a danger sign and a large number makes us feel bad about ourselves. So notifications intrinsically cause upset and distress. And so how do you express the same information more kindly? And the design we just happened to come up with was the idea of changing the the weight of the font of the app name. So if if you had a lot of Twitter messages, the Twitter name would be in super bold. And if you didn't have any Slack messages, the, the word Slack would be very thin as a typeface. You're still picking up the same information ambiently, but in a much more gentle, calm way. And it sort of builds on... There's a lady called Amber Case who's done a lot of great work around calm technology and building on that. So does that uh, not trigger the same primordial response than the the red circle? Yeah, because it's not attacking your attention. It's sort of guiding you somewhere rather than pushing you into a defensive posture. So that's the technology guiding you and your attention to where you might have messages. But what about you guiding the technology? So it's it's a reciprocal thing rather than you as the end user being sort of manipulated or directed. Can we have reciprocity there? Yeah, for the purpose of that project, our project, we were very much focused on the tech side because that's where we saw a lot of the problem. We, the biggest trick that big technology has portrayed on us is making it all our problem. You know, like, let's give you all the strategies to turn off and it's, it's a you know they've they got away with it for so long i think it's time to it has to be more of the problem and i think the there's loads that we can do as individuals to change our relationship but what do you think the solution is is it regulating big tech breaking it up i think it's all of it so because we like uh, easy things to remember we described it as retreat a redesign and relationships so the idea of like so as an individual you learn how to retreat wisely that's the whole sort of digital detox idea or setting boundaries around how you use your devices. But if that's your only strategy, it's a shit strategy because you can't ultimately retreat from technology because it's so embedded in, in our culture and society and economy. That's when you start to change your relationship to technology and start to see where see where the pain is and see where the compulsive behaviors are. So in the changing your relationship piece, that's very much around self-awareness and becoming more aware of our patterns and actually seeing where 
one's usage is based on compulsive behavior or feelings of low self-worth or whatever it might be and uh, softening and paying attention to those things so that ultimately you're using technology in a much more agentic or empowered way what was that other word before empowered agentic I know I was, I was a bit unsure about using it but what I'm agentic by meaning like being I'm using it with agency oh agentic is agentic a word is agentic a <laughs> it word is now. <laughs> You've committed it to audio. Uh, it's good. I understand what you mean now. The third R is about redesign. And that's the thing which you can't do as a user, which is the industry's problems. So I think the solution is is a nexus of all those three things. So yeah, becoming better at turning off, becoming uh, more aware of how technology is u- affecting us and, and nudging it towards what I might call like a mind positive behavior. And then the campaigning piece around asking for and demanding redesign and am i right in saying your kind of day job as it were is working with the nhs in scotland building digital products and services and then my question is how you've been embedding some of these principles especially in light of covid where mental health rates and depression rates and anxiety rates are shooting through the roof i work for nhs scotland as part of a small but growing team so the classic problem in health technology is nothing talks to each other or that you try and solve the problem of nothing talking to each other by building loads of connections between everything. Whereas Scotland very wisely, a couple of years ago, basically said enough is enough. It's no longer okay that you need to repeat your history seven times in three hours once you're admitted. Like the clinician should know this seamlessly and that information should move with you. And it was decided to set up a thing called the National Digital Platform, which is basically a single source of truth for clinical data. So that instead of solving the problem by connecting all these million systems, we just create one system that feeds the data from everywhere else. And so that's a, a generational project. As a team, we're building national digital infrastructure. And so it's incumbent upon us to build it in such a way that doesn't exacerbate existing divisions or health inequalities so whether that's how data is coded all the way to how front-end sort of services are provided or made accessible so have you had to kind of steer in a wildly different direction because of covid as a team we've been affected a number of different ways i think we've worked on a number of covid projects which has been challenging and incredibly fulfilling so you're familiar with the idea of the shielded populations of the people who had to stay who had the hardest the sort of the hardest hit with regards to restrictions we were running the messaging service that allowed them to get food deliveries and things like that so we were doing some very valuable things as a design team you know our whole methodologies of workshops and engagement has sort of been turned inside out and we're having to, to reassess and experiment with how we do that well in a remote environment we're constantly as a design team thinking about and trying to keep in mind the citizen perspective. And that's not always easy, but in public service because of the, so many existing systems. I think I heard something recently, parents with newborn children, and I had this with my three children, get a red book. Did you get that in Scotland? Which you f- Yeah, yeah, we have the red book system. Uh, and yeah. so it's a pa- paper-based thing. Uh, but in lockdown, because there's be- there's no real digital equivalent to that, it's been a real problem, especially, you know, children with various ailments and what have you just transferring that data and anyway it was just kind of shocking how kind of primitive i mean it works for the red book works really well in analog form but yeah in 
it's been exacerbated in 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 COVID for for new parents, especially with children that have various conditions. But you said something earlier, which I just want to come back to quickly, which was around systems integration and like the long term trend has been about connecting more and more data. Is are you basically saying that? You can have too much systems integration because inherently I would feel making connections between data sets is a good thing. But can you go too far? This is where we need to draw a diagram. <laughs> but the difference, the difference being because if your approach is very much around integrating data systems, it gives permission to prolif- for those systems to proliferate. If you say we can do all the integrations, which means that it just allows more and more things to emerge and then you end up doing more and more integrations. That's a lot of work. Add another system and then, you know... Yeah, it kind of goes exponentially. Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. So the nature of Scotland being a smaller country, we've got the ability to to put data in a central place and then use that to feed systems rather than having to do everything as from an integration perspective. That's the challenge that we have as a team as to how do we transition to a more a centralized data system as opposed to a world of integrations. So bringing all of those things together, the mindfulness, the digital, the healthcare response, strikes me that with all the things that you've been involved with, you've got pretty unique and interesting perspective on all of that stuff. Give me hope for the future, Rohan. Where is this going? Is there a, is there a positive path we can navigate our way through this? Ultimately, people know what good feels like and what good looks like. So whether it's within public services, there's this phenomenon of people having very active digital lives and then they turn up to work and they sort of put up with what they know are bad user experiences or bad data systems because that's just what they're used to. I'm seeing in different industries, whether it's the meditation retreat industry or NHS or the arts, leaders, audiences, more junior members of staff, coming to the point where they realize we need to do things differently. And COVID as a catalyst for change has been really interesting within NHS Scotland of seeing how, you know, like in the last, just this week, Scotland launched its Test and Protect app, which has been downloaded over a million times. And, you know, our team, our CTO was quite involved in in that piece of work. And he described just today the complexity of the dozen or so institutions that led to that product going live was you know, I couldn't have like I couldn't have dreamed of that combination of organisations and vested interests and politics and all the stuff that you'd expect, but it happened and it shipped and it is working and it's protecting people and it's informing people to self isolate. It's doing its job and what we're seeing in you know just in other contexts of of healthcare of how the the simple thing of more people using video as a means of seeing their clinicians or seeing their patients, depending on what size of that. And the access benefits of that and the time saving, but it doesn't necessarily time save times for doctors because they spend the same amount of time, but you don't have to take half a day off work to have your appointment. Like that's a, that has a very real cost to it. That's a small example of how we could come out of this process or this time, this moment with different kinds of behaviors, different kinds of permissions. That's transformative for a lot of people. Yeah, no, I totally get that. But also your CTO talking about these kind of 12 institutions coming together to, in an unexpected way to, in a crisis. Yeah. Obviously. Things which people said were impossible have just been done. When you spend your whole life believing the world is one way, and then you have an insight, be that through deep meditation or through a, a project like the Test and Protect app, 
you you see that another world is possible. You see that oh, actually, maybe I'm not the center of the universe, or um, maybe we can collaborate across all these complexity of vested interests and politics. And when you see that, even if just for an instant, your previous worldview is is dissipated. You no longer believe as much in the past. So the classic metaphor in Buddhist or Hindu teaching is the idea of like you think there's a snake in your room and then the light comes on for a millisecond and you see oh it's just a coil of rope and then the light goes off but now you no longer know it's a snake you know it's different and that fear goes away when you talk about sort of awakening or deep spiritual insight or even just like recognizing for people who use mindfulness in anxiety and depression and when they have their first insight actually my thoughts aren't facts right that's like the heart of Cognitive therapy, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is the idea that my thoughts aren't necessarily true. When you really see that, that is incredibly transformative and that completely changes your what you can do. That's the flash of light which shows you that the snake is not a snake. It's just a coil of rope. For NHS Scotland and for us in our team, sort of seeing that, oh, you know, we, these things are possible. The practice then is becomes seeing it once is good, but if you see it over and over and over again... There comes a point where you actually switch the the light just is on all the time and that's when that's when it becomes really like magical but like from a mindfulness perspective if you're, if you're practicing there becomes a moment where your default mode becomes a bright level of awareness within our team at work if we can do more collaborations within within organized parts of the system we maybe haven't worked with before then the system can flip into a a completely different mode and that's that comes through practice importantly actually you don't just do it you need to recognize that you've had the insight within meditation circles people can have really elevated experiences and profound experiences but they don't recognize them for what they are and that's why within things like and so within the world of work i think that's why things like retrospectives and things like that are really useful to sort of have these review cycles so, oh this happened you need to really recognize what happened to get the most out of it and so it's again it's sort of a bit like again making another connection around if you go on a meditation retreat at the end there might be like a sort of sharing people get the chance to talk and talk about what's happened and the same thing comes up every time which is how do i keep this going now that i'm going back home being able to quieten down the mind and they want to take that home despite the the issue is also that the retreat environment is an artificial environment and it's designed to help you have that calm experience and help you have those insights. You can't actually take that home because it's intrinsic to the environment because your home environment is so different. And it's a bit like leaving lockdown because the narrative of people trying to recognize, you know, I, I did more exercise or I spent more time with my partner or my children and how do I take that? So the skill of a practitioner is to, there's a real skill in that transition. So you talk about connections. I think less about connections and more about transitions. As you move through a door, so in the old days when we used to commute, right, one of the, the problems with everything collapsing on each other or everything being stacked on each other, our work life, our home life, our family life, is that we don't have those transition points to actually let go. So if I've been really stressed at work, the commute and the transition is a chance for that to dissipate. Whereas if you're really stressed at work and then you swivel around in your chair and suddenly you're now in dad mode, there's no space for that so transition to happen. So for me, liminal means much more about transition and threshold than about connections between things. It's actually about the space between. There's a sort of like joke within Zen or around how the idea of a junction, so whether it's like the junction of your skin and the outer world or the, your 
self and other or awareness and object of awareness the thing which connects is also the thing that divides the more you sort of that's like a sort of japanese sort of zen koan type of thing where you start exploring the fuzziness of boundaries maybe it's not about finding time for connections maybe it's about artificially building thresholds maybe me walking the dog isn't about 20 minutes lurking around Kelvin Grove Park maybe it's about literally like um, moving from one that moment of moving from one mode into another and so that is uh, that's the downside of my the mindfulness approach to of like practicing everywhere is that the, the great thing about formal meditation practice where you're sitting down and closing your eyes and doing what looks like meditation is that it has that container to it. There's a specialness to it. You know, there's something that happens when you sit down. If you've done a lot of meditation in the past, just the act of sitting down and closing your eyes can flip, you can just sort of develop, a, engender a lot of calm. So you're, it's just a trained sort of Pavlovian behavior in a way. And so the issue is when you're yeah, sort of losing those formal forms which has been a part of my practice has, has sort of led to not I still do a bunch of formal practice but I've sort of de-emphasized formal practice but and we've de-emphasized formal work or de-emphasized formal differentiation in lockdown and we don't have the the comfort of a threshold to remind us that we're moving into a different space because it's a thing I would do you know it's a thing I would actively do was I came home from work I would deliberately go okay now I'm entering my house but you know the first interaction I have with my wife sets the whole tone for the evening right and if i come in going i won't believe what did it or i'm still fuming from something at work then that sets the tone we have an argument or things a bit short and suddenly i'm sleeping on the sofa (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry to hear that you know what i mean (laughs) i do i absolutely know what you mean and including the swiveling on the chair and going into dad mode straight from work stress i totally relate to that yeah so we need to engineer so yeah so maybe yeah that's my that's my gift and my reflection the thing i'm taking away from this conversation is uh, coming back to that definition uh, yeah it's because it's my gcse latin limen is threshold and liminal is of the threshold so um, how do we build more thresholds and more artificial divisions because ultimately there are no divisions but there are at the same time and so It all comes down to how you're looking. Thank you, Rohan. I really like the way he effortlessly switches between everything from parkour to cooking to digital technologies, practical mindfulness, leading to deeper insights about life, the universe and everything. In particular, I loved what he said at the end about seeing a coil of rope instead of a snake so that the impossible becomes possible. I also like the bit towards the end about building thresholds, and that which connects us can also divide us. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it too, and if you want to find out more, I'll share some links in the episode description. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community that seeks to solve hard problems that fall between the cracks of different people, places, and organizations. Our community and this podcast is supported by our patrons, and so I'd particularly like to thank and welcome our latest community members, Stephen Hicks, Anne Bergen, Frank Veltring, Meredith Finkelstein, Babusi Nioni, Rob Dawson, and Daniel Ash. Thanks again for all your support and participation. To find out more about Liminal or to join our community, please visit www.weareliminal.co. Before we go, please can I ask that you share this podcast with others who you think might like it as well. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, please keep on paying attention to what is happening right now. And of course, keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thanks and goodbye.